to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. My topic today I think is so important and I wish I'd heard it 20 years ago. I think it honestly would have changed a lot of things that I was doing and I just think it's such important information. So I hope today you'll actually sit down, get a piece of paper ready and take notes. This stuff is just too important not to you know, really register it. My guest today is Dr. Brooks Keeshan. Dr. Keeshan is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Utah and the Associate Vice Chair of Research in Child Mental Health at the Huntsman Mental Health Institute. He is a child abuse pediatrician and child psychiatrist and provides clinical care to children and adolescents with histories of child abuse and other traumatic experiences at Primary Children's Center for Safe and Healthy Families. Dr. Keishan directs Pediatric Integrated Post-Trauma Services, or PIPS, a SAMHSA-funded center of the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, developing, evaluating, and disseminating tools and processes for frontline pediatric providers to detect and respond to youth at risk for traumatic stress and suicide. Dr. Keishan is the co-chair of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, Child Maltreatment and Violence Committee, and is a member of the AAP Council on Healthy Mental and Emotional Development Executive Committee. Please join me in a very warm welcome to Dr. Brooks Keeshan. Hey, Brooks, how are you? I'm well. How are you doing, Leah? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your time and expertise and all the things. And I just wanted to let viewers or listeners, I should say, know a little bit about you. Your your path and mine crossed in an interesting way quite a while ago, working on a suicide prevention um, initiative. And I've just been lucky that we keep crossing paths. So I appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Well, happy to do. Thank you. And why don't you just talk a little bit about kind of your journey into what you do now and, and kind of how you got there? Well, thanks. Well, so I'm uh, triple board trained. So I did the PEDS uh, general psych and child psych residency. So I think, you know, a lot of folks who are child psychiatrists kind of specifically choose child psychiatry to be their profession. I actually didn't. I chose the triple board training um, really because of kind of a a prior uh, educational experience. I had a Montessori education minor in uh, undergraduate and got to teach three to six-year-olds in a, a early childhood classroom. And you know, really kind of bought into the whole Montessori philosophy around development and education and didn't really know much about child psychiatry in general, but certainly was very interested in the mind and the mind-body connection. And so when I found out about a program where you could be a pediatrician, which is what I always wanted to be, but also get trained in how the mind works as well, to me, that just seemed like a great fit. And I think that the fact that I had the absolute fortune after residency to to do a child abuse pediatrics fellowship uh, back in Cincinnati had great child abuse pediatric mentors, but also had a wonderful mentor, Frank Putnam, uh, a child psychiatrist with a wonderful expertise in trauma, specifically around sexual abuse, but other forms of trauma as well. I, I really benefited from having a, a three-year triple board informed pediatric fellowship after my training. So I just, I, I had a lot of fortune in terms of the folks that I got to, to learn from. But I think in a lot of ways, it, it, it originated from this fact that I want to be a pediatrician, but I want to be a pediatrician that learned about both the physical as well as the mental health. And so that was kind of how I ended up here. I've gotten to cross paths with other triple boards. And I think it's just such a, a great combination. I wish they'd had that when I was a resident, but I sort of did it without the training part of it, learning as you go. But I, I think it's that nice marriage of having this psychiatry lens 
because it's different. I went to a, an Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry meeting and I had this huge aha, like they think differently than we do. The training's different. And even though we're all seeing kids, and so I think bringing that perspective, but on the flip side, being a pediatrician, you know, we're such a, you know, so focused on development, developmental processes that it brings that nice marriage of the two. So I would think that you would fit in either, you know, either realm. Uh, do you have an area that you specialize in now? Well, so I, I do specialize specifically in child psychiatry, but with a trauma focus. And, and frankly, I think of myself as a pediatrician who got additional subspecialty training in abuse, trauma, and child psychiatry. But that's how I think of myself. I really think of myself as a pediatrician who just went and got additional training experience. And I feel like that's where, when you think about how the vast majority of mental health care, when we're talking about prescribing, is delivered by pediatricians, it's kind of silly that that it's not thought of as child psychiatry being really a subspecialty of pediatrics. Back in the, I think it was the 40s or 50s, it hadn't been decided yet whether child psychiatry was going to be a subspecialty of pediatrics or psychiatry. And a number of pediatricians were some of the first child psychiatrists really at that time. And, you know, it, it's interesting to kind of think about like how decisions that were made in probably smoky boardrooms 60, 70 years ago <laughs> impacted the way the medicine is practiced now, but that's really not that far off. And, you know, with a few different voices in the room, child psychiatry really could have been a pediatrics especially rather than the way that it's structured today. That's a very interesting uh, perspective. I've never heard anybody say that before, but totally makes sense. And we'll claim you as a pediatrician. So, oh. I... <laughs> so, so many things we could talk about, but today I, I really wanted to kind of pick your brain from the psychiatrist viewpoint and to talk about psychopharmacology, because I think this is an area where pediatricians get worried and and hung up that a lot of mental health emotional health is it comes down to treating with medication and i think the longer i practice the more i was like nah i mean it's a part of it for sure but it's not the whole thing and i think it's unfortunate that that is so scary for people but mm -hmm. you know i think the reality like you said is so much of it falls in the laps of primary care so we have to have some expertise but what's your thought i honestly early in my career i had an experience with a child psychiatrist who i really felt like thought that i shouldn't be prescribing but they didn't want to prescribe because they didn't have time to see the kids. So I was kind of stuck. And then I didn't feel very supported until we had our child psychiatry access program here in Michigan, MC3. And that really gave me a, a lot of confidence and support. But so, so what do you think about primary care pediatricians prescribing, you know, psychotropics? Well, I mean, I think that pediatricians need to be, feel comfortable with the first steps of treating uh, common pediatric mental health concerns, uh, just like they are in the first steps of treating common respiratory concerns or common uh, concerns around uh, neurologic challenges that kids are having. But I don't think it's a matter of pediatricians being comfortable with pharmacotherapy. I think it's around pediatricians feeling comfortable with the first evidence-based steps for different mental health conditions, of which psychotherapeutic interventions are generally up at the top. And for many of them, uh, there is a pharmacologic consideration as well. But it's not that, oh, well, we're MDs, and so we need to be thinking just about the prescribing piece. I think it's about identifying, accurately diagnosing, and then you know working with families to choose what's the right next step for them being guided by the evidence. And that's you know the idea of choosing a psychiatric medication when that's appropriate. But that's also the idea of truly helping the family identify and get linked into the evidence-based psychotherapeutic interventions that might be most helpful. I've, I've heard you say the word that I think is really critical, and that's identify and recognizing. And I think that's, you're right, that's really something pediatricians are, are good at. So, you know, I think about, you know, we have a kiddo sitting in front of us, it could be in my office, it could be in the emergency room or on the inpatient ward. And there are mental health concerns because, you know, honestly, we, we bring our, our mental health with us regardless, right? And we might be 
anxious and scared, which if you're sick, that's going to play in. Um, maybe we're sad, angry, irritable. So, you know, kind of where, where do we start with that? Is it, is it with meds? I don't think so from what you just said and kind of, I knew that wasn't the right answer, <laughs> but I think that often is a roadblock or a barrier. But so what do we need to consider when we're first starting out with this identification piece? Well, I think it does begin with what the family's concerns are. Really, we can benefit from the use of measurements uh, that we're taking in the office, either universal screening or uh, targeted screeners that we can use to inform our differential. But, you know, the, the family voice, the child's voice, the adolescent's voice is really critical as a place to start. And, you know, it's not okay, I think, in my mind to say, well, we're having mental health concerns or they're having a lot of distress. That that could be a starting off point, but we have to get away from the thinking about the mental health as this one big catch-all. There really are individual diagnoses that are going to guide the right choices when it comes to medications or psychotherapeutic uh, recommendations. And, and based on the types of concerns they have, there are lots of pitfalls in terms of what do we need to rule out? And so thinking about kind of how do we go about that in a practical, uh, doable sort of way is also critical. You know, you think about how many kids come in and there's some level of distress. One of the things that we often don't think about diagnosing on the mental health side of things are things like adjustment disorders or the, the lived experience that kids are having as something that's truly meaningfully contributing to whatever concerns they have. And so, you know, having a way in your clinic to be able to think about, you know, positive predictive value. So I got a screen of a PHQ and it's a little high, or the family is coming to me saying, you know, I'm worried about our my daughter or my son being uh, depressed. Like positive predictive value would say that, you know, those concerns leading to an MDD or other kind of specific diagnosable kind of major depressive disorder, it's it's not that high relative to all the other things that be, could be going on that could be driving some of those depressive symptomatology that the family is concerned about or that we're seeing in the screener. So having some way, when we talk about identifying, having some way to have a space where the family can talk about what's going on what's happening, not about the specific symptoms, because we can capture that in a screener. That is not hard to do. Your MA can do that if they're going through the PHQ. They, the kid can fill it out themselves on a form. What can't be captured so quickly are the challenges at school, the family kind of conflict and disruption, the loss of a not not a not a death loss, but even just a loss of an older sibling who's now moved away to college. You know, so many different things could be actually meaningfully impacting those depressive symptoms. And if we spend all of our time just looking for like, do they meet diagnostic criteria for the depressive disorder? We're going to miss all of these things that really could be actually kind of screaming at us. Oh, this is not major depressive disorder, single recurrent. Uh, without psychotic features, this is a kiddo who just lost their best friend from a regular day-to-day -day interaction. Or this is this is a family who's you know really struggling with conflict at home, or they're near the verge of divorce, or so many other things that could be you know a significant traumatic experience this kid had, where they were they were sexually abused or violently bullied at school, um, that really could be driving those uh, symptoms we're seeing and, and really would be the primary target of intervention. And, and really, if we were to just use a screener to say, hey, you know, this looks like a, a major depressive disorder kiddo, to use that example, we could be clearly going down the wrong pathway. I think that's a really important thing that you just said, that it's all those other things that the only way that we're going to really know about is to take the time to ask. And I think that's another barrier that we get hung up on is that where am I going to find the time? If I'm going to ask these questions and there's all this other stuff, what do I do with that? I mean, how, how do I in a busy practice tackle, you know, I've got a well visit and now I've got this screener and there's, you know, it's really high for anxiety. I mean, to me, I, I have to take the time to say, boy, I see on this you know, this screen that we have everybody fill out that you've got some things on your mind. Can you tell me about that? But I kind of have to be prepared that it might open a Pandora's box, right? <laughs> Is there a way to help with the mindset of that? Well, I, I think it can open a Pandora's box. 
but you know, so does the kiddo who um, you see in your office and they're actually, you know, six months old and they're breathing like they just can't stop breathing and you slap a pulse ox on them and all of a sudden they're in the 80s, you know, that throws our days off too. And, you know, I think we're in some ways more comfortable with that throwing our day off than a kiddo who we we're not uncovering something where it's a mild symptomatology and there's some concerns and we can, you know, reasonably say, hey, let's let's set up a separate follow up visit where we can really talk about this and spend a little time digging in and figure out what the right next steps are. But everyone's always worried about kind of the unleashing the you know, severe depressive symptomatology with suicidal ideation, a lot of traumatic stress or a lot of anxiety and suicidal ideation. Like, well, that that is kind of a similar crisis kind of situation as it is with the kid who's medically in crisis. And I think thinking about, one, recognizing that the vast majority of babies that we slap the pulse ox on are in the 90s and we don't have to call out the call EMS to our clinic or whatever, or get them shipped off to the hospital, throw oxygen on them. The vast majority of kids that we screen for depression, anxiety, traumatic stress, uh, other concerns. Also, when we're screening, the, the risk of uncovering a, a major crisis is pretty low. But when we do uncover one of those major crises, boy, it is worth that time uh, to take. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's that's why we went into the business usually is to make an impact, save lives. And, you know, what better way to do it than, you know, than that. But I think that that's an important perspective that we have to stop sorting out. Like, is this a medical problem or is this an emotional mental problem that this is a child and a teen in front of us that is experiencing some distress? And my job is to help sort that out by asking questions that are going to take some time and I think it's important what you said about, you know, if it's not an emergency to say, boy, this, you know, there's some things here. Um, we may want to get a little more information from the teacher or whatever other input we need. And to say, I'd really like to spend some more time. Can I have you schedule something and, and come back and see me whenever that extra time I have? And then everybody can sigh a relief a bit, the family, and that you acknowledge that there's something, you know, the patient that you may have just heard them. You know, I think that the fact that you ask, I always remember Vince Folletti, you know, the the famous ACEs guy just once said, the asking is in and of itself therapeutic, you know, that somehow your asking reduces shame and, and all those things that just says, hey, it's okay for you to talk about this stuff here. Yeah, it really does. And I think normalizing the response and us not getting overly terrified about what might come out of this. And but putting it in the pathway that we would with any other medical condition where we need to, you know, have send them to the lab and get some labs drawn. And then we're going to kind of talk with the kiddo in two weeks and the family in two weeks about, you know, their whatever possible rheumatologic condition or possible, uh, you know, we, we need to get uh, pulmonary function tests. And then we're going to kind of sit down. And when we get all the data, we're going to kind of think about it like, that's exactly the same thing for the vast majority of pediatric mental health that we uncover, and especially with screening. I, I do think that if you have a kiddo, a family, they're setting up a mental health visit. If you have the fortune to have that kind of set up in your clinic, then sure, we definitely do want to kind of set up a little bit extra time there because we don't have the lab tests that the endocrinologists and the cardiologists and the pulmonologists do. Uh, our lab tests are talking. And, and, and having some of that opportunity to create that space to learn about the, the events that are going on in that child's life. So, so we do need to do that. But I think from a screening standpoint, when we uncover and have, you know, potentially concerns that are raised, we certainly don't want to be prescribing at that very first visit when we don't have all the information, just like we don't want to be prescribing at that very first visit when we don't have all the information for any respiratory cardiac or other concern. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's important. I, I think you said something I want to underscore and that that lab tests for us are talking and that that is as important than the blood work in this particular case. And I, yeah, I really like that. I think that's important. It sort of drives the direction for sure. So because I know listeners are interested in 
the medications, I want to switch gear a little bit. And let's assume that we've done a really incredible job of talking to this family. Mm -hmm. You know, say it's a, let's make it a 12-year-old female who comes in and uh, she is having trouble going to her friends for overnights because she gets so worried. And she really wants to do that. And her mom said, you know, gosh, she's Every time this comes up, it's a big deal. There's no trauma history. You've done your screening. You've had a nice discussion. And, you know, turns out that this kiddo has had lots of separation um, concerns from an early age, doesn't sleep well, cries often, very emotional. Find out that there's a family history of anxiety. And so you're wondering about, okay, is this somebody that I treat? I feel like there's enough impairment. I, you know, I've done my screens and I've had some conversation. So take it from there. And you're in the primary care seat now. So, so I think you basically, you've, you've gotten a lot of really important information and you mentioned the separation piece. I want to highlight that real quick. So in a, in a general peds clinic, if you're using the GAD7 as your kind of anxiety screener, which is, as it sounds, Generalized anxiety disorder seven screener. There, there is certainly overlap with also being positive in kiddos who have separation anxiety or other anxiety disorders, part of the pediatric anxiety triad. But really, you know, unless you use something more like the scared, which has nice panic, generalized anxiety, social anxiety, separation anxiety, and school challenges, you you probably actually haven't uncovered the extent to which this uh, 12-year-old's anxiety really is pervasive in, in these other areas. So, so I think, you know, that's kind of my first step is that if you've done an initial screener with something like the SCARED or the, the GAD7 that was positive, I definitely would want to do a SCARED. I think it's also helpful at that age, you know, definitely want to have a SCARED from the kid. So not necessarily a parent report SCARED, although if you have both, that's great to, to have that and, and really to score it all the way through. So we don't just have a total score, but we really understand what is the anxiety symptomatology in all these different domains. Because if we go down either a psychotherapeutic route, which is thinking about an anxiety-focused CBT, which would generally be kind of the first-line treatment for an anxiety disorder in a kiddo like this, versus an SSRI, uh, which would be the first-line treatment for moderate-severe anxiety in a kiddo like this, or the combination thereof, which, you know, based on a lot of the available data, combination therapy with both an anxiety-focused CBT and SSRI is going to get you some of the best chance for complete remission. That's really, we want to make sure that we have one a full picture and then thinking about, well, what's the evidence base between behind the psychopharm, the psychotherapeutic intervention, so the family can really make an informed choice as to what they want to do for their next step. So I'm I'm in my head now and let's say I did a really great job and I got a scared and there was indeed you know a subsection on separation anxiety that was pretty high and I also find out that this patient had seen a therapist in the past but hasn't been regularly but maybe was willing to go back to do that but also Lots of um, somatic complaints, stomach aches, it's impairing going to school. That's why she comes home when she tries to spend the night. So there's a significant degree of impairment. And I'm thinking, would medication be helpful? And kind of what I hear you saying is this is an opportunity where I could make that decision. And if that's the case, SSRIs would be the group of medications probably would be your go-to. Is that where you would start? They would. And, you know, I think I I always stick with thinking about, well, what are the most, what evidence, what SSRIs do we have the greatest evidence base for and the most experience with in, in youth? And so, you know, when I think about the SSRIs that I use in my clinic, I tend to be pretty boring in that I'm using fluoxetine, sertraline, and acetalopram. And why do I use those three SSRIs? Because those have the most evidence and that's where we have the most experience. And, you know, I think that if you stick with those SSRIs and, and frankly, you know, it's, it's a pretty simple order for me too. Like, you know, most often it's starting with fluoxetine, but then sertraline or acetalopram next after that. Sometimes, uh, it will be sertraline with fluoxetine or acetalopram after that. But really it, I don't go outside of those because if you get the diagnosis right, 
and you find that you also are able to facilitate them getting in for some anxiety-focused CBT, these medications actually work pretty darn well. Um, I think a lot of us get frustrated that, oh, well, you know, I try SSRIs and they don't work. And, and we can talk a little bit about why that might be the case from a prescribing standpoint. But I think if we start off with the idea of are we identifying the right kid for whom an SSRI might be appropriate, that's where I think most of the time the SSRIs are not effective, is that we misidentified a kid as being one who would be appropriate for an anxiety disorder, but we missed significant trauma and traumatic stress or or something else that was going on in the family home that was really ongoing driving of anxiety that frankly needs to be addressed in order for the anxiety to be able to be remedied. That's where I think most of the treatment failures really do live. It's in the the misappropriation of what we're seeing as uh, really describing in a nutshell an anxiety disorder when frankly it's really more traumatic stress or something else that's going on in the family structure. And what if there's both? I mean, what if there's, there is trauma and I mean, is there a place for some treatment of anxiety symptoms if it's really, I mean, you're working on the trauma situation, but in the meantime, you've got a really impaired kid. Is there a place for that? So, you know, from a trauma-informed approach, one of the things that we wrote about in our a clinical report on the pharmacologic treatment of kids who have experienced child maltreatment, which doesn't speak to all trauma, but I think is a good example for us to follow. Um, we talk a lot about kind of addressing other things that could be contributing to the anxiety symptoms first before going down the SSRI pathway. And so in that would be both ensuring the safety of the environment. You know, we haven't treated them necessarily with trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy yet or other therapies, but like, is their environment physically safe? You know, because I don't don't know about you, but I can't expect a 12-year-old to not have anxiety when it's warranted anxiety uh, because of the environment that they're in. So, you know, it's not to say we do both at the same time. And frankly, I do think from a stepped approach standpoint, we have to ensure that whatever those social determinants of health, those ACEs, those traumas are that are going on, that they really are addressed beforehand, um, at least from a safety standpoint. Um, And then second, I would say that if you're taking a trauma-informed lens and you've got a kiddo who actually does have a significant trauma history, has a lot of traumatic stress symptoms, uh, we often will work on focusing on addressing their sleep first because chronic insomnia can also drive anxiety symptoms um, just the way that, you know, lots of other medical challenges can. And so if you think about, well, how do we get that sleep going first? The old adage, if you're if you're getting trained in the anxiety book, uh, if you take the anxiety book out, is like, well, sleep can be concurrent with anxiety. And so we'll treat the anxiety and the sleep will get better. And yes, for bread and butter, generalized anxiety without a trauma history, other stuff, that does make sense. But if you've got someone whose sleep challenges are really related to their challenges and their lived experience, their trauma history, I would actually argue that we need to flip it and we need to say, well, let's actually address the sleep first through education, sleep hygiene, maybe short-term treatment with a very kind of low-risk medication like melatonin, and then reassess. Let's take that out of the picture. And then with good sleep, is the anxiety still persistent? Are the somatic symptoms we're finding still persistent? You know, how many kids with headaches and tummy aches and stuff, you know, if we get them sleeping better, all of a sudden, some of those other challenges start to go away. Um, but again, that goes to this whole idea of, do we really have the right candidate for SSRI? And I think part of that is, is being able to do a stepped care approach where we're doing things like addressing their, their social determinants of health and their trauma and their insomnia when those are present, and then giving that a little bit of time and saying, okay, we gave that a shot. We have clear, persistent, generalized anxiety symptoms on the SCARED or the GAD7, even with maximizing those other approaches. Those are the kids who really are going to have a robust response to an SSRI. And then when we talk about that treatment with the SSRI, we're not treating to like that, you know, if we're starting with sertraline and we're not just going to do 12 and a half and then see him back in a month and go to 25 and then see him back in a month and go to 37.5. I mean, if you look at the data around the use of SSRIs, taking the 
CAM study as a great example, they had forced titration going up by 25 milligrams a week. So I think that the other thing that we really want to be thoughtful when we're using medications is to make sure that we're maximizing dosing. So if you go back and look at the CAM study, which is an excellent guide as to how we can be prescribing medications, they focus on the use of sertraline. They were titrating by 25 milligrams a week, forced titration in that study. So forced titration, meaning that if you've got you know, significant side effects, you leave it at those, you don't push it until those side effects uh, resolve. But, you know, we know that the the effective dose of uh, SSRIs like sertraline for anxiety disorders in kids are generally in the 100 plus milligram range. So, so we're really not doing those kids a service if we think about starting an SSRI, but then don't aggressively titrate up to what is going to likely be an effective dose for them. So I think it's that combination of really being selective with the population that we're utilizing SSRIs from, which are kind of anxiety disorder where we've either ruled out or already addressed a lot of the other adversities and traumas that are going on with that kiddo. And that we're also kind of truly titrating these medications to what we expect to be effective doses for them. I think that's really great advice. I actually, in listening to you, it makes me sort of breathe a bit of a sigh of relief. Like there are so many things that I could focus on first to make sure that I'm, I'm really doing the right thing. I'm treating the right thing. And SSRIs, there is data. They are safe and can be very effective, but I can be thoughtful about how to do it. I don't have to go to that right away and where I might not be comfortable. I have some time to really kind of think this through, but then also knowing, you know, the target dose, knowing that I can titrate and being comfortable in, or maybe not comfortable so much, but have more confidence that this is appropriate treatment and other people have studied this. I did want to ask a little bit about the nuances. You mentioned three medications that I think are going to be familiar, should be familiar to pediatricians for both depression and anxiety. And you mentioned fluoxetine, sertraline, and escitalopram. There are some nuances between those. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the differences and why you might pick one over the other? Because I think we don't always understand you know, why one other than I'm just comfortable with this one? Well, you know, I think actually the I'm just comfortable with this one, and I really know the side effect profile, and I can effectively manage this in between visits. And, you know, I have a good go-to titration schedule that I can work with the family on. I actually wouldn't, you know, I, I think that that's actually important. You know, the way that I kind of think about it in my head is that if it's a generalized anxiety, and that's kind of the kiddo that I'm seeing, I generally would start with sertraline because that's what the CAM study was based off of. If it's a little bit of a younger kid, I'll probably start with fluoxetine first, just because we have a little bit more experience with fluoxetine in general. And, you know, if it's a kiddo where they may have a little bit more challenges in terms of taking the medication on a regular basis, I'm not going to tell them to take it every other day, but certainly fluoxetine has a longer half-life than sertraline. And, you know, in general, um, escitalopram tends to be my second choice with either of those or my third choice. And, and that's really nothing more than we have more data on sertraline and fluoxetine. So unless there's a really compelling reason to kind of skip over those, that's kind of the, the process that I take. But it's not, I don't think that there is a wrong process if you're really sticking within those three medications for whom we really have the best evidence. I like that. And I think that feels comfortable. I like the, if I'm comfortable with this one, I think about like using stimulants, you know, do I start with methylphenidate? Do I start with dextroamphetamine? Well, sometimes it's what I'm comfortable with and you get comfortable with two or three things. That's a pretty good place to start. So I, I did want to ask a little bit about, um, you mentioned titration, but let's say that I've maximized the dose. I'm getting some response, but maybe there's a side effect. And I think I need to go to a second SSRI before throwing in the towel. Any tips or pearls on kind of how to start cross titrate? How do you recommend or how do you do that? So I am a big fan of not cross titrating uh, because I think that, you know, in general, the reason why we're cross titrating is we haven't gotten maximal effect. 
if we don't think that this medication is providing maximal effect, I think we have less of a reason to think that this medication is really providing significant benefit in general. And so I don't worry so much about kind of the the absence of the medication because we're switching the medication because it wasn't helping. So when I think about switching, a couple of things to consider. One, again, the treatment of mental health is not just pills. And so like, where are we at with getting this family in for an evidence-based psychosocial intervention like anxiety-focused CBT and and really taking that into account and saying, hey, we're going to make some medication changes. Let's make sure that we maximize the other supports and the other resources and the other treatments that we have going on while we make this change. Then secondly, like I would just kind of, you know, bring that medication down in a relatively quick manner with the idea that we can always bump back up a little bit if there's if the child is experiencing withdrawal side effects. But frankly, if we think that the child really does need a different SSRI, we should actually use the fact that the child has a treatable illness. We need to transition to a medication that's going to be more helpful to the child as quickly as we can. So, so I tend not to have these long periods of tapering down off of medications when I'm thinking about switching, but more kind of a let's you know, maybe half a dose and then stop over a couple of days and then kind of just start up on the new SSRI again with the idea of wanting to be as aggressive as we can with the titration, recognizing the specific dynamics of the family or, you know, if they were very wary about medications, if the child was very sensitive to the first medication. So that's why it was medication failure, not because of the, the lack of efficacy, but really the intolerable side effects. Those would be reasons to go a little slower with the titration of the new medication. But, you know, again, think of this as any other medical condition. If we're using a med that's not very helpful, let's just get rid of that med and let's start to get to an effective dose of a medication that we think is going to be helpful, but not to overly complicate it. Yeah, and how much do you worry about, you know, I mean, if I'm, say, I'm a, a kiddo that's taking escitalopram and you know, you stop it abruptly or you go down too quickly. How how do I manage that kind of those withdrawal or discontinuation symptoms? Well, part of that might be managed by the initiation of the second SSRI. So, you know, that SSRI is going to be hitting similar receptors. And so the, the lack of receptor engagement uh, that you have through the withdrawal of that SSRI could certainly be palliated by the, engage, the use of that next SSRI as part of that kind of transition to care. But also like kids stop meds all the time, not prescribed stop, they just stop. Um, so I, I do think that it's something worth educating families about, giving them signs to look for uh, in terms of kind of uh, nausea, irritability, fatigue, difficulty sleeping, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, like it's something that happens all the time anyway. And frankly, you know, when families are wanting to switch to a different medication, oftentimes they've already stopped the medication themselves. <laughs> That's a really good point. I did want to ask you about one other nuance is, do you do anything differently when you're using fluoxetine because of that long half-life as far as can you just stop it and let the med kind of piddle out on its own before you start something? Any Any thoughts on that? Yeah, if I'm at 40, I might go down to 20 and then stop. If I'm at 20, I'll generally just stop. Okay, fair enough. And I know these are all with caveats about it's individualized for sure. Well, I did want to ask a little bit about other medications where it's complicated because even though I may not be starting a medication for mood disorder, we have lots of kids that come to us from psychiatry, particularly our community mental health clinics, where a kiddo may have I hate to put it this way, but sort of getting, they're as good as it gets. They they feel like they've stabilized, they've done all the interventions, and they're looking to move this kiddo out of CMH care so that they have, because they've got a long waiting list for other kids coming on, and they're asking the pediatrician to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those kids come with five, six meds. They may be treated for ADHD, there's an SSRI on board, maybe there's an atypical antipsychotic, and you know, I mean, I've been in those shoes. And on the one hand, some of it, I'm like, I'm not comfortable with this. On the other hand, I don't want to just stop it because that could destabilize somebody. So, you know, I think this is an opportunity where you can reach out to your 
child psychiatry access programs. This is a perfect situation and shout out to those folks. But what are your thoughts on that? And then I know that, and we can talk about this in a minute, there's sort of this whole idea of de-prescribing, like how do we know when a kiddo maybe doesn't need all that? And how do we, what do we do? Two really good questions. So let me take the first one. I have a big challenge with a kid who's on five, six, seven medications and the kind of air quotes, this is as good as this kid's going to get type standpoint. If you're on five, six, seven meds, you should be perfect. Like, I mean, so, so the idea of going back to like, are we actually targeting the right thing? Or is the fact that all of these different medications are only partially effective for their areas of concern, really highlighting the fact that we've missed the boat probably really early on and that this youth, this adolescent, this even older child was never actually appropriately diagnosed and given some of the evidence-based treatments that would be most helpful. Um, trauma is probably the worst offender of all of them. And oftentimes you'll see these kids with five, six, seven meds, and they do have PTSD listed as a diagnosis. Yet there clearly wasn't an opportunity for kind of a thinking, well, how much of what we're seeing is really best described by traumatic stress or the ongoing challenges within the environment. And so we're essentially using what I think Mike Naylor very appropriately describes as the pharmacotherapy of desperation. <laughs> that That's not a good place to leave any kid. So it's not that we just want to stop all those meds because maybe they are helping in their own certain way, but it really goes back to like, what was the right diagnosis in the first place? Um, did we ever truly address some of these underlying challenges that frankly could be driving, mimicking, having syndromic overlap with what we're seeing? And that's why the SSRI is not that effective for the anxiety. That's why when we started the stimulant, the stimulant was only partially effective. And so we had to add uh, a second generation antipsychotic to kind of also um, address some of the hyperactivity and behavior challenges. And, and even then, we're not great. I, I think I just struggle with this idea that um, you can have a kid on a complex array of medications and and we're just kind of going to be okay with leaving it that way. So so in that sense, to get to your second question, like we're, we're really at a crossroads here, right? So either this is a significantly psychiatrically complex kiddo, which is a very small percentage, of the overall adolescent population. I would argue that those kids need to still be managed by child psychiatry. You know, I think we can co-manage in certain instances those kids, but you know, if you've got a kiddo with complex cystic fibrosis and they have a number of different bacteria that are completely pan-resistant to different things, and it's a complex, you know, from a lot of nutritional issues and that kind of stuff, like the pediatrician wouldn't be okay saying, oh, I'll just take over because uh, POEM and endocrine want to get some more kids into clinic. No, that kid stays in the cystic fibrosis clinic to get the best care, the ongoing care that they need. And there's a role for the pediatrician as part of the team, but it's not that the pediatrician takes over. So I do think that we have to have a little bit of self-advocacy with some of those really complex kiddos. Often it's developmental delay adds to the complexity. You know, this is a kind of kid that actually does have bipolar disorder early onset or some psychosis early onset. Like we need to at a minimum be doing this in partnership with psychiatry. It's not that it's okay for us just to keep bring those kids in and kind of have them sit in our clinic. At the same time, there are kids who have been seen within different mental health systems where uh, there was never a thought to de-prescribing. And frankly, they just had a number of different things added on, all of which had maybe a minimal or partial effect. And there really are good non-kind of bipolar, non-psychosis, non, but, but more trauma and life experience facts that frankly explain why the kid has not done so well. In those cases, I actually think that kind of taking a thoughtful, deep prescribing approach in primary care can be a really meaningful step. And that's really looking at kind of, well, what are the diagnoses that we don't think are really that reflective of this kiddo? What are the medications that never really helped that much? And, and what are the medications that are, are most, have the most risks long-term? And working in partnership with the family to think about, well, you know, if we were to try to streamline 
your medications? You know, what what could we start with? You know, I think the the key with deep prescribing or whatever you call it is that it really is ongoing treatment. So we have to have a meaningful treatment plan when we're starting a medicine. We have to have a mean, meaningful treatment plan when we're stopping the medicine. There isn't like a one size fits all approach to how to deprescribe when a kid's on five, six, seven medications. But often with a little bit of time and you know using the the family's insight and wisdom, often you can identify, well, these are the ones that really don't seem to have helped much at all. And then to start to take those off and kind of see what's left. Um, that can be a helpful approach. But again, that's in a kiddo where I feel like there are better explanations for what's going on than the seven or eight diagnoses that this kid comes with, with these six or seven meds that they have versus the kid where, wow, they really had what sounds like a true florid manic episode that required a lot of significant stabilization. That's a kiddo where I, you know, I, I really want to think about, well, how do we make sure that they get the right ongoing child psychiatric treatment that then I can be a part of the team with? Well, you've said some really incredibly um, valuable things. I think making sure that there are not better explanations for the symptom and the number one being to consider is trauma because trauma can look like many things. I love the phrase, the pharmacotherapy of desperation, you know, just sort of throwing everything because nothing seems to be working. I think that's a reality. Is there a move on the part of psychiatrists to look at this? Because I, I feel like a lot of those regimens get started by psychiatry because I don't think most pediatricians are that comfortable doing that. So, I mean, how do we partner up so that we're, we're not confused and, you know, how do you get this message to both sides? Oh my gosh. There, there's so many ways to go with that, Leah. I mean, I think first and foremost, you know, we often don't connect the most severely impacted kids with uh, the child psychiatrists that we have in our community. And I, so I do think that first and foremost, we do need to figure out how to better improve access to care, especially kind of expert child psychiatric care, and to link those kids who most need it with with those groups. And, you know, I think that the call-in lines, uh, the hotlines for pediatricians are very helpful. But in my mind, that is a substitute for what we really need, which is a way to better triage the kids who need some type of psychiatric evaluation and to make sure that we're really getting the kids who are most in need of a comprehensive psychiatric evaluation by a child psychiatrist, actually to have them cared for by by the few child psychiatrists that we have. There's a bunch of pediatricians out there that just were like, yeah, that's exactly what we think. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, but how how do you make that happen when there aren't enough child psychiatrists to go around? I, I also think that the the other part of that question is, you know, we do need to educate our child psychiatry colleagues on like what are the comfort level, the capacity, and also the limitations of ongoing psychiatric treatment in primary care. And so, you know, if you're in an inpatient unit, a lot of safeguards in place, and the treatment that you provide to that kiddo in an inpatient setting is designed to actually get that kid so that they can be successful in a lower level of care, either a day treatment program, an outpatient program, or, you know, no treatment at all. And so I think we also, on the child psychiatry side of things, do need to be thinking about, like, if this is a kiddo where I feel like long-term they're going to be appropriate for and would be best suited by partnering with or being primarily cared for by primary care, then I need to be thinking about the medications I choose and to make sure that I'm choosing ones that are consistent with what the primary care docs in my area, the primary care providers in my area are most comfortable with. It goes both ways. Again, I would go to this pediatric subspecialist analogy. If there's medications that only a handful of pediatric subspecialists really know how to use well, it would be a little silly for them to, to say, well, and now we're going to give it all over to primary care for them to manage you know, we, we wouldn't do that with, with these other disorders. I think we need to be thoughtful on the psychiatry side that when the long-term disposition is primary care to make sure that we're setting up the whole care team, the family and the provider for success as well by utilizing the medications that are most commonly used and most effectively used in primary care settings. I love that. And oh, that it just happened more often. <laughs> 
this is an aspirational discussion, right? It's, yeah, no, it's it's important. And I do think that more recently, this two-way conversation is happening more often between pediatricians and psychiatrists. And maybe because of people like you who are triple boarded and walk both paths, that's really helpful. Well, so much more to say about all this, but I think you have given us lots of pearls. And I think the biggest one is make sure that you know what you're treating. I mean, and make sure that you've taken into account all the things that could be impacting those. And it's not necessarily even trauma, but might be circumstance, you know, the loss of, you know, the family pet may look like depression. I mean, I can certainly imagine that for me, so that we just have to be more thoughtful about how we're teasing this out. And, and I think you've laid that out. And I think the pediatricians who are able to consult with you are probably very happy about that. (laughs) So thank you so much for your thoughtfulness. I I really appreciate what you do. Thank you. I appreciate the chance to talk to you about this. Well, it's, it's really important. And I know for a lot of pediatricians, you're probably preaching to the choir like, yeah, we can do a little bit, but some of this just feels like it's more than we should be doing or it's more than I I could learn it, but you know, I, I know that's a hard one and, and we didn't talk about all the other nuances of medications, but maybe some of that's out of the scope and, and we should be okay with that, but we got to figure out how to, how to do this better. So, well, it's a start. So thank you for the conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for this incredibly important conversation. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I think you really ought to sit down and take notes. But in case you missed it, I have all the takeaways. Number one, again, thank you to Dr. Keishan for being so thoughtful. Number two, pediatric primary care clinicians need to feel comfortable identifying and treating common mental health concerns like anxiety and depression. Number three, start with universal or at minimum targeted screening for depression, anxiety, suicidality, substance use. These assess for symptoms, but remember they're not diagnostic. Number four, always consider trauma and lived experiences when assessing for mental health concerns. I will say this like at least three times in these takeaways. Many of the symptoms of mental health disorders are related to these issues and they're not a diagnosable DSM disorder. Number five, take a comprehensive social history. Consider social determinants of health. We often miss what and where we can actually really help. Number six, there are often better explanations for symptoms and behaviors versus true mental health diagnoses. Let me repeat that. There are often better explanations for symptoms and behaviors versus true mental health diagnoses. Number seven, PCPs often worry that asking and screening will unleash all the bad stuff, you know, the proverbial Pandora's box. The reality is that most of the things identified are not emergencies. You can buy time and set up a follow-up visit. Think about the workup of possible arthritis. We order labs and then we wait. We buy some time as we think through the diagnoses. Number eight, the lab test for working up mental health concerns is talking, and it is as important as a blood test or imaging. Now, if we could just get paid for it. Number nine, those things that are emergencies, like suicidal ideation, well, we need to address that. Think DKA, respiratory distress. It is the same model. Number 10, normalize mental health. It is, in fact, part of us. We need to let go of the dichotomous thinking that mental and physical health are not one in the same. Number 11, gather your data. Use targeted screens. If you're worried about separation anxiety, social anxiety, panic, consider using the SCARED versus the GAD7, which really just looks at general anxiety. You can really tease out those other sort of subtypes of anxiety using the SCARED. And there's a youth and parent version, and they're free. Number 12, in general, your first line treatment for anxiety and depression is therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, but rule out trauma, social determinants of health, 
parental mental health, substance use disorder, and exposure to violence. Number 13, for these, there are targeted interventions. Always think about patient safety. What about sleep hygiene, assistance with food, safe housing, trauma-focused CBT, family-based therapy? Number 14, if a mental health diagnosis is made based on patient history, family history, and symptoms, and you did your due diligence noted above in the last two takeaways, refer for appropriate therapy and consider medication. If the symptoms are significantly impairing function, go ahead and start medication simultaneously with CBT. Number 15, if you are going to prescribe medications for anxiety and depression, start with SSRIs. Have a couple that you're comfortable with. Dr. Brooks picks three based on data and safety, fluoxetine, sertraline, and escitalopram. Number 16, Start low, but do titrate to response or side effects. And you don't have to do it over weeks. You can do it more quickly than that. Number 17, make sure that you review discontinuation symptoms that can occur when a medication is stopped. That includes nausea, irritability, fatigue, and sleep disruption. I know that I've had patients that showed up in the emergency room with discontinuation symptoms thinking it was some, you know, really bad flu If that does happen, if they take their medication, those symptoms go away pretty quickly. Number 18, if you need to switch medications due to a, quote, treatment failure, consider again, is there any mistrauma, family disruption, social determinants of health? Is there something else? Number 19, do use what you're comfortable with and rely on the evidence. Know the side effects. Number 20, I love this one so much. Please write this down. Beware the pharmacotherapy of desperation. I think that's so important, you know, that we're not just prescribing because we don't know what else to do. Number 21, if a kid is on five or six psychiatric medications, and we've all seen this, they should be perfect. If not, did we miss the boat? Number 22, Complex psychiatric conditions like bipolar disorder and psychosis really need child and adolescent psychiatry. And I know you are all out there jumping up and down saying, yes, we do. This is like chemotherapy. We need child psychiatrists like we need Hemonc. There are just some cases that are beyond what PCPs can and should do. Number 23, what about de-prescribing? We've all had those kids which come back to us from some other care that are on multiple meds and we're trying to decide, do I continue these? What what do I do? Consider which medications have the most risk and the least effect and wean slowly. Ask the family, has this medication been helpful? Did you see any problems with it? But have an ongoing treatment plan regardless of whether or not they're on medications. Number 24. For the psychiatrists out there who are prescribing and then transferring back to primary care, please consider us. Please consider our comfort and knowledge and offer your ongoing consultation and support. Be a friend. Be a helper. Partner with us to co-manage patients with complex but stable conditions. We can use our child psychiatry access programs in situations like this, but again, I think having real relationships with someone in person who you know that you are co-managing complex patients with is critical. You know I love my child psychiatry access psychiatrists out there, so I want you to know how important you have been to my life and I know to many pediatricians, so please keep doing what you're doing. Number 25, we should always be asking what else could be causing these symptoms? Make sure we are not just prescribing medications, but maximizing all supports. This is really hard stuff, but we are truly up to the challenge and really good at taking histories. It is what we do. It is important to have supports and resources, not just medications. I honestly tried to pin down Dr. Brooks on just psychopharmacology, but his message is loud and clear, and he returned to it over and over. So, Take note, it may be something else that pills won't fix. Take care of yourselves, find joy, 
and be incredibly proud of everything you do and your willingness to get uncomfortable. Learn things. You are really good at that. You've got this. Please find me on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown and email me at gaginoel at medicalbhs for my newsletter. You can sign up. And as always, I'd really love to hear from you. I come across so many really interesting folks, but I really want to hear what you want to listen to. So if you have other ideas or even guests that you want to put forward, please let me know. Take care. Have a great day. And I look forward to you joining me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh, and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much, and I hope you will join me next week.